blessings in life. We thank you that, that you've allowed us to be your people and that we're, that we're followers of Christ. And we thank you for that. We just thank you for every blessing that we have in, in Christ. We thank you for this time that we have to study together. We pray that especially bless Andrew as he imparts the word to us. And that you'll be with those that are sick and unable to be with us. Amen. So, a couple of things. First thing, I made a PowerPoint. Because that'll help me organize my thoughts a little better if I have some sort of external thing that we can all see. That way, if I just like skip over it, you can be like, what about that? And then we can come back to that. I don't know. Jerry had a PowerPoint too, and it didn't keep y'all from going down rabbit trails. So. I heard how long that uh, denomination class took. I heard rumors. So, no, that's, it sounded like a great study. Um, but I made this. Some of this, I went ahead and put in some of this, a little bit of the stuff we talked about last week. But I realized as I was making the PowerPoint that I left out some stuff because I didn't have my notes. So it works out. So if, if you're like, quit harping on that. We talked about that plenty. Great. We'll just move right on. But if not, then there's a few things that I, I feel like I didn't. Uh, give you the fair shake of so our, our are about this. Are you, that's good I this is on my Google Drive and so I can make it shareable so that you can always go back and look at it I haven't done that yet but I'm going to and then I can send it and you can put it in the newsletter so that would be that'd be good um, so the gospel of Mark tell me something your your memories is small but what do you remember from last week talking about Mark anything in particular Probably the first gospel written. Is that up there? Yep. <laughs> David's cheating. <laughs> uh, probably the first gospel. Oh, that's one of my favorite things. Yes, and you immediately remembered to say that. Yes, he uses the word immediately. It's, it's fascinating. And if you read Mark for very long at all, you'll notice it. But in English translations, they get tired of translating it immediately. So they say at once or suddenly or and then. And so they get bored of it. But if you know to look for it, you'll often notice it anyway. So, Juanice, good morning. Good morning, good morning. So good to see you. I don't know y'all are here. How many do you see of me? Good to see you. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Really glad. Disappointed you weren't here last week, but glad you're here now. Christmas, really? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. He also skipped the childhood and the birth. Yeah. Sails right over that, just launches right into the story, which is another reason I like Mark. He, he just wants to get down to brass tacks, right? He just wants to get to the story immediately, and he just launches right in. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's baptized, he's doing ministry, boom, keep going. I like that. Yeah, it's a quick-paced gospel. Absolutely. Um, so, this is we talked about this, but this is the John Mark that's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. John Mark or just Mark. And he's the cousin of Barnabas, the encourager, who was on a missionary journey with Paul several times in Acts. Um, and in Acts 12... They go on a missionary journey, and John, John Mark, is with them, and then he abandons them. He goes back home. We don't know why, but whatever it is, it seems like Paul didn't take that very well, because then they try to go on another missionary journey, and Barnabas is like, I want to bring my cousin again, 
And Paul says, uh, no. He abandoned us last time and we're not doing that. And then that's when Paul and Barnabas split ways. They split ways over Mark. And I don't know, I don't know what was going through Paul's head. It seems like he was pretty perturbed. But by the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy, about the time he's close to his death, he says, hey, bring, bring Mark with you next time you come to see me, to Timothy. So if they were in ill favor, it seems like he came back around. And there's also, um, so just real quick, if you have a Bible, let's go to the, near the end of Mark. So I want to show you this. This is complete and utter conjecture. But that's okay, because people have written entire books off less. So it's just something to ponder. Uh, in Mark 14, verse 51, there's a unique little blurb that only shows up in Mark's gospel. Okay? And I'll read it to you. There's a hypothesis. There, there's a theory about this. Take it for what it's worth. But here's what it says. This is... Uh, okay, first context. This is whenever they are... Uh, leading Jesus away to the trial and all that. He's just been betrayed by Judas, and he's, they're on their way to the trials. All of the disciples desert him and flee. And then now this. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. And they, the soldiers, caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. And then it just continues with the story as we remember it. That is only in Mark's gospel. It's not in any of the others. So can you imagine what some of the theories are about why that's in Mark's gospel? A lot of people think that the little boy was Mark. So as the theory would go, you know, they have to have the Lord's Supper in an upper room somewhere. Usually you would like rent out your upper room if you could. Um, John Mark lives in Jerusalem, it seems. So maybe it was in his upper room. Maybe he's peeking through the door at the Last Supper, and then he's curious about this Jesus guy. And so he's, but he was just put to bed after his bath. I don't know. I don't know. The, as the theory goes, it's complete conjecture. But it is weird that that only shows up in Mark, a certain young man. It's weird. I don't know what you would do with it. Seems like he has a history of fleeing. Flees here. Flees in the, the missionary journey. But then he's restored in the long run. I don't know. It's something. It's curious. There's other places where a young man is watching nearby. It's, um, I think there was another story, whether it was stoning of Stephen or... But, you know, so there's that little weird yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, I love the weird things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I have no idea. I know that that story is weird because it's like you're reading the passion narrative and you're like, yeah, okay, Jesus betrayed, he's going to the cross. And it's like, oh, yeah, there was this little kid following around, half naked. Then they grabbed his cloth, and then now he's naked. There you go. Okay. What, uh, what benefit do we have was from knowing that? A- yeah, I don't know. So my question is, why did you include that? Like, why include that in there? And I don't have a good answer. I have no idea. So I have suggestions about other things that I think are weird that Mark included. What chapter was that? No suggestion. Uh, chapter 14, verse 51. Yeah. John mentions something about the disciple that Jesus loved, and he doesn't say it's me, you know. Right. But you don't, you don't usually, if you're writing a story, you don't usually include yourself in it. Sure. You, sometimes you don't. Yeah, yeah. I, you're probably right about who that was. I, you know, I, you know like, because there's, sense. because I have, like, no, uh, because I have no skin in the game on this. Like, if I'm wrong, it doesn't matter. And if I'm right, great. Like, yeah, I'll say I do think it's Mark. Sure. So I'm like, 
great. It's Mark. I don't know what difference it makes in the long run, but like it, it's fascinating, isn't it? But uh, so it's it's the John Mark that we've heard of. There was a early second century church father, Papias, and he's the guy who tells us, yeah, it's Mark who wrote this, the same John Mark that was in the other stories. And he says, well, really, Mark went to Rome and heard Peter preach, and then that's where he got the main information for his gospel. So even though Mark was not an original apostle, um, he got his information, it seems, from Peter. So it's apostolic, even though it's not from the apostle directly. So, of course, Matthew, an apostle, John, an apostle, Luke, not an apostle, but he's a doctor and a researcher, so we're like, it was fine. He, he was certainly among Paul's companions. He's, he's a good guy. But Mark, he, uh, he seems to have gotten his information from Peter. So uh, those unique features we were talking about, and nobody said the sandwiches. We got the immediately, but we didn't get the sandwiches. Sandwiches. Oh, you better bring an appetite on Sunday mornings for the Gospel of Mark because he loves sandwiches. And in fact, in the first 15 verses, we'll have our first sandwich. So whenever we get to that, we'll show it. So you know what I'm talking about. He, he starts with a key word or a story and then interrupts himself with other stuff and then comes back to that same theme. If you'll notice in the, week, in the weeks and months and years that come, I do that a lot in my preaching because I, I really like that, like, wrap it with a bow kind of thing. I'll start with an idea and then end with that same idea or allude back to it. Because even if the sermon was terrible in between, people will go, ah, you, you, back at the, ah, and, they, and they, they feel like they really got something, even if it was terrible. So, uh, but Mark is not terrible. He does. He sandwiches a lot. So, for example, the, the best and clearest example of this is the story of the fig tree. He curses the fig tree, goes in to cleanse the temple, comes back out of the temple, and then the disciples are like, didn't you just curse that a little while ago? It's already withered. And so it's like fig tree, temple, fig tree. And so you got the sandwich. And so maybe, maybe this cursing of the fig tree says something about this cleansing of the temple. Hmm, right? And so usually it interprets what's in the, in the middle. The, the bread interprets the meat and the cheese in that regard. So um, triads. Mark Locks likes threes. He'll have lots of series of threes. Sometimes he'll repeat a key word three times. So like if it's an unclean spirit, he'll say unclean spirit three times. Or sometimes he will, so if he's like, yeah, Jesus told parables, he'll tell three in a row. Or Jesus did many healings, and he'll tell three in a row. And he likes to do that. He, he has threes, and it's a good biblical number. Three is uh, an important number. Jesus is in the tomb for three days. And I realized this just the other day while I was studying. Um, seven might also be important for Mark, which is a great biblical number. Seven days of creation and... Um, like a number of completeness. And in the Gospel of Mark, the word gospel is used seven times, scattered throughout it. I don't know. I just don't think that's a complete coincidence. Seven, good biblical number, gospel, important word, seven times spread out throughout the gospel. I don't know. In music, no, in music when uh, composing, they, things will repeat three times, but not four times. It's like... Right. There's something in human Three nature. is an important is like memory you device. You say it, oh, I kind of heard it. Yes. Second, oh, I kind of heard it. The third was the emphasis, and then that's, that's it. And so yes. like in a lot of music, things are repeated three times. It's the same in comedy, the rule of three. Yeah. So it's like the first time he sees the skateboard and he slips on it. Second time he steps over the skateboard, and then the third time, he forgets about it again and falls. And then you're like, ah, that's hilarious. Or uh, in communication circles, yeah. we'll talk about the rule of three. Like you 
have three points. That's why a lot of sermons in the days used to have three points in a poem. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Threes are important groupings, memories. Well, numbers were also extremely important. Super symbolic. You can't understand Revelation if you don't understand numbers. The book of Revelation. And there's no S on that, by the way. That aggravates the far out of me. There's no S in Revelation. You sound less intelligent when you say Revelations. Anyway, pet peeve. It's like saying what? Illinois. Illinois, yeah. Or it's like saying Kroger's. The, the grocery store, Kroger. Uh, we have them back home. They would say, we're going to Kroger's. And I'm like, really? Multiple? The only, they, they have pretty much everything. That's just my smart alecky nature. I'm sorry. Well, irregardless. Irregardless. Oh. Oh, I hate that. It's always interesting that someone who has a degree in you know, religion or has studied their whole life or something says Revelation. That's what drives me. It's Revelation. It's the little things, people. It's fine. I love many dear people who still say Revelation. Yeah, just to see if they know Oh, man. I know a lot of people who now do that on purpose just to mess with me. Yeah. Just because they're like, well, the book of Revelations. I'm look at it. <laughs> well, it should be Revelations. There's, there's multiple revelations <laughs> of God, sure. But the revelation that was given to John was yeah. one big re- Anyway. Anyway. Uh, back to this, or else I'll rant all day. Um, echoes of the Old Testament. Mark doesn't directly quote the Old Testament much. He does right off the bat. We're going to look at that soon in the first... Uh, three verses the verse two and three he quotes from isaiah it's not actually from isaiah it's from isaiah and two others we'll talk about that but he he doesn't quote much he alludes it's subtle so rather than saying you know as psalm 23 says the lord is my shepherd i shall not want instead he'll just be like and jesus was a shepherd and he made them lie down in some green pastures anyway and you're like wait a second that sounds like psalm 20 and that that would be more mark style and he does this several times, um, little bitty phrases uh, that might go unnoticed unless you're trying to pay attention for those little things that he does. And he does it a lot. So he also has really bad Greek grammar, which unless you read Greek, you won't be able to notice. But I'm telling you, it's awful. It's absolutely terrible. Uh, it's really tough to translate Mark, not because his grammar is so sophisticated, but because it's so awful. It's really bad grammar. Like, he, he doesn't understand sentence structure in Greek very well. And so he, he doesn't do it well. However, isn't it interesting that God used him to write a gospel anyway? That's one of the reasons I like to point that out. Because it is bad. You think is, was Greek a second language to him? It could be. Who knows? I, mean, I picked that up in people's emails that, at work. Oh, it'll be all jumbled. Sure. And then I meet them and they're from Nigeria or something. Yes. And it's like, oh, okay. No English wonder. is not their first it's language. You're doing great. I don't even know how to say hi. Yeah. He, yeah. So everyone in the ancient world probably spoke a little bit of Greek, just enough to sell and buy in the market. But as far as like his literary capabilities, he certainly never took a class in the Greek. Like he would have failed grammar school. So maybe he flunked out to take care of the family. I don't know. Yeah. So, but it's probably a second language in Judea. They would have spoken Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew, which is probably what Jesus spoke. So he probably spoke Aramaic, which is interesting. Some people 
So, of course, the New Testament was written entirely in the Greek language. Some people say that Matthew was written originally in Aramaic and then later translated to Greek, which is a language really close to Hebrew. Problem with that is we've never found any copies of Matthew in Aramaic. So if you did, time will tell. But it's possible. Just for, Mark anyway. has the ending, that section at the end that is yeah. very... And we can talk about that. So do we want to get into that now? Let me let me say one brief thing about that. Let me that's say one like a, brief thing the, about the ending. Throw the, pull the pin and throw the... <laughs> it's, a big, it's a big thing. So let's look at the ending of Mark real quick. I don't want to take too long on this because I wasn't even planning to go here, but it is fascinating, and I'm a Bible nerd, so I have to say something. Um, ending of Mark. What does your Bible do at ver- after verse 8 in Mark 16? Does it do anything funky? The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. It's yep. in brackets. It's in brackets. Mine's in... I have two. I have one that's in brackets and then another one that's in brackets. And it says the shorter and the longer ending of Mark is what my heading say. Does anybody have something like that? I hope your Bible has something because it really aggravates me if they have nothing. Yeah, mine is uh, verses 9 through 20. I read brackets. Right. Does it have a footnote about like some of the earliest manuscripts uh, don't have it? Uh, it's contained only in later manuscripts. Exactly. So, A, it, this is the end of the book. I That's just, the end I of the book. I just watched this YouTube, uh, this professor in uh, North Carolina, and he was talking about things that are, you know, text in the Text critical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, really interesting, and this was one of them. And, it's a big and one. he was saying, it's so odd that it ends. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. end. Ah. I never thought about that, but that is very strange. I think that's how it ends. I think it is. So there's two options. Either it ends there or we lost the ending. Because what we're reading is it's probably not the original ending. Here's the reason they still put it in Bibles and they put it in brackets. It's because the King James Version had it. And people are going to revolt in the streets if you dare question the King James too much. Because the King James was based on what's called the majority text, which means if it's in most of the ancient manuscripts, let's just keep it. But the problem with that is, let's say there's an error introduced into the majority of the manuscripts. Then you've just included an error in your manuscripts. And probably, I, I, I mean, it doesn't, like, for example, so Mark was written in the first century. And the earliest copies of Mark we have are in the second and third century. This doesn't show up till like the 7th or 8th century. And sometimes it doesn't show up here. Sometimes it shows up in other places other than Mark. And you're like, that's fishy. So it probably means it wasn't original to Mark. I think it ends in verse 8. Some people are like, we've just lost the ending. I think it ends in verse 8 because I think we're supposed to talk back. I think we read that and it says, and they went out and told nobody for they were terrified. The end. And we're like, what? Well, we're reading it. So they had to tell somebody. It might have been. He might have been playing on the second Mark. He could have been. Yeah, maybe he was planning on Mark too. Yeah. Well, another indication that might, might be the case is that in some manuscripts, those verses are actually stuck down on the end. Correct. After six or twenty. Correct. All right. I guess it'd be eighteen if you take those out. Mm-hmm. But uh, so it sounds like somebody inserted something, and then that ending was there, so they moved it down to the end. Right. Yeah. It. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. 
And another reason I think it ends in verse 8, and another good reason for this, is back to the very beginning of verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is only the beginning. His earthly life was only the beginning. And if you look in Acts, Acts 1.1, Luke says, So Theophilus, in my last book, I wrote to you about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. And you're like, he's back in heaven. What do you mean began? Well, because there's the entire Acts of the Apostles. Jesus is still working. How dare we say that he's not? That was his earthly ministry, and now he's working at the right hand of God through his church. And maybe Mark is saying, well, this is only the beginning. Let me just, let me just give you a primer, just the introduction. And then 16 chapters later, and he says, well, they went out and told nobody. And you're like, what? Yes, they did. And he's like, exactly. It's only the beginning. <sighs> told you I love Mark. Isn't that good? That'll preach right there. Oh, my word. Okay, I'm, I'm getting caught up. Okay, uh, a few things that I, so I do this sometimes, and I've done this with Mark, especially because I love Mark so much, but I like to try to find key words in the beginning of a biblical book and then keep looking for those words as you keep reading. So here's a few that I've, I've uh, gone through and highlighted, and I'll try to note as we go along. Wilderness slash desert. It's not the wilderness. It's the desert. But some translations say wilderness. Wilderness makes me think of like, like woods, like wooded area. No, I've been to the Judean desert. There is nothing out there. It is only by the miracle of God that Jerusalem exists. There is nothing out there. It is a barren wasteland. If you've seen the newer Star Wars movies, it looks like that. Literally, because that's where they filmed them. It is, it's a desert. But that's important symbolism because Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness desert. And then Jesus goes and spends 40 days in the desert. I mean, that's important. And then often he'll go out back to the desert again. It's interesting. I think that's important. Uh, Holy Spirit slash just spirit shows up a lot, of course. The word baptize, baptizer, baptism, some form of that shows up a lot, especially around John. Teacher, proclamation, message, word, something about teaching or proclamation, something about that shows up a lot, of course. The word way shows up a lot. Which is interesting, in the book of Acts, the church didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves the way. That was their corporate title. Individually, they were disciples. Corporately, they were the way. They were only called Christians by other people in Antioch. And that might have been a negative thing, by the way. We always are like, they were first called Christians at Antioch. Actually, that might mean something like little Christs. So it's actually probably an insult, like, thought we killed this guy. Now we've got a bunch of little of them running around. And that, it's probably an insult originally, um, which, you know, you can wear an insult as a proud thing and be like, yeah, Jesus lives in each of us. So of course we're walking around with him inside of us. But I think originally the intent was an insult and they, they didn't really call themselves Christians much at the very first. They called themselves the way, which is interesting because it's a theme that shows up in Mark from the very beginning and in a lot of the other gospels, if you look for it. So right off the bat in verse two, prepare the way of the Lord. It shows up a lot. Um, just a few more. Power. The power of Jesus, especially over the spiritual and demonic forces, is very highlighted in the Gospel of Mark. So the demons are terrified of Jesus, which is interesting, because unlike the Hollywood movies, they are terrified of him. We're not terrified of them. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Ugh, I can't help it. Uh, bread. Oh, my word. you got to pay attention to the bread in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so, for example, Jesus does the feeding of the 5,000 and then the 4,000, and then they're on a boat, and Jesus calms the storm. 
And you know what the disciples do? It says, they were still confused about the bread. After Jesus just calmed the storm, like I would have been like, why? You just like, the storm was crazy and then he calmed it. But the disciples are like, yeah, yeah, that's great. But the bread though, I, he made all that extra bread. That was, man, I can't get over that. It's so weird. They were. We saw some mon- monetary uh, gain. Maybe. From that. Maybe, yeah. Uh, it certainly seems some disciples yeah. did. Isn't that another theme of Mark? He makes the disciples out like they're Oh, yeah. All the Gospels kind of present the disciples like they're a little bit, like they're not getting it, you know, but Mark really highlights that. He likes to show the disciples as dummies. He really does. Which is maybe I, another option about that little boy following after the disciples flee would be that this little random boy had more courage than his disciples. And so it's just a random extra story that they knew about that Mark is like, I just want to remind you of this. A little child had more courage than you to follow Jesus longer. That's another option. I don't know. And even if it's Mark, it may still have that point. Like, this little kid who knew absolutely nothing, let alone following him for years, had more courage to continue following him longer than you did. Boom. And then he runs away naked, which makes me think of Genesis. They were naked. They felt no shame. Anyway, better stop it. I'm going to I'm gonna lose my, uh, lose my bearing. Uh, the word Elijah, Elijah shows up a lot. Elijah is an important theme, both in relation to John the Baptist and otherwise, it shows up a lot. Notice a lot of times they'll ask the question, are you the Messiah or are you Elijah? So there's this expectation about Elijah coming again for some reason. Jews today still have that expe- expectation, by the way, that Elijah is coming again to do something important. Um, whenever they celebrate Passover, a good observant Jew is supposed to leave the door open and leave an empty chair in case Elijah comes wandering in. Today, still. So, interesting. There's this heavy expectation on Elijah in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and, and in, let's see, Malachi, which is the last book of our Old Testament, uh, makes that point that Elijah is on his way. So, it's interesting. Uh, Sabbath and synagogue, those two go together. Jesus is in the synagogue every Sabbath preaching and teaching. And he goes to the synagogue because he's a good Jew. Jesus was Jewish. He was raised in the Hebrew faith. Um, and he celebrates Sabbath. Sometimes not the way that the Pharisees would like him to, but he does. He celebrates Sabbath. Uh, terror, amazement, fear. It's interesting. They can't decide if they're amazed or terrified. Sometimes those go together. Because Jesus will do something and they're like, oh. And in fact, the thing back to the bread, whenever he calms the storm and then they're still surprised about the bread, it says they were terrified because of the bread. And you're like, really? You're not terrified that he calmed the storm? You're terrified about the bread? Yes, because there's something about that bread. Okay, I said this last time, but this, the, the first 15 verses, they're like an overture. If you do musical theater, you know that, that like the lights come down and you're sitting in your seat and nothing's happening on stage yet, but that music that swells for the first few minutes, it gives you every note that's going to reoccur in the rest of the piece. That's the first 15 verses. It's the introduction. It's the overture. And this is why I think we've got to look and listen for those themes that are prominent in it and then see whenever they, they come again. And it's our first sandwich, as promised, the first Mark and sandwich. So verse 1, the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 15, it says, repent and believe the good news. And that's how it ends. So the whole section... The introductory section all has to do with good news. That's what holds it all together. That's the bread, which means that everything in between has to be read through that lens, I think. 
It all has something to do with the good news. It all has something to do with the gospel. We begin and end with that and everything in between. That's what it's talking about. So John is part of this. That's why John is so prominent. John's important. Every gospel author mentions John the baptizer. Every, let's see, every, I'll say every gospel mentions the baptism of Jesus. John technically doesn't narrate the baptism of Jesus like as him being baptized, but he narrates um, John at the baptism of Jesus. So I'm going to say he still narrates it. Like he doesn't say Jesus went down in the water and then he came back up. Instead, John, the gospel of John shows John the Baptist standing on the bank and saying, behold, the son of God. And clearly Jesus was just baptized. I think that's clearly the context there. So the baptism of Jesus is the starting, the launching point of his ministry. So we got to talk about that in the, the gospel sandwich. And then Jesus's temptation. It's also very important. Mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not in John, but John's a weirdo. Um, so yes, our first Markin sandwich. So I've already alluded to this. I think the beginning, it's funny he says the beginning, because on the one hand, you're like, yeah, he's like, once upon a time, you know, the, like the key word that says, I am starting to tell you something. The beginning, start, thus starts my story. And, and that could be part of it, but also... I think the entire gospel of Mark is just the beginning. Because if you go to Acts 1.1, it says, in my first book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, his earthly ministry is only the beginning. Once he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he's not just kicking back, relaxing. Like he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but it's not like in a recliner. Like he's at work through his church. He is working and active. And so... He's still alive and working. This is, his earthly ministry is just the beginning. And John goes so far in the Gospel of John to say, uh, this verse that has disturbed me greatly for a long time, John goes so far as to say, well, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Because he is going to the Father, we are able to do greater things because rather than it being one earthly Jesus, he now has the entire body of the church, him working through each of them. So Jesus sitting at the right hand of the father is not him in a recliner. It's him at the control board. It's him in the commander's chair. If you're into Star Trek, he's at the captain's chair. He is directing the people. He is pushing them forward. Greater things than Jesus? Seriously? Well, his earthly ministry was only the beginning. The beginning of the gospel. Uh, gospel, important word. We talked about this a little bit. The good news of Jesus in verse 1. But later in verse 14, it's the good news of God, presumably the Father. You can't separate the two, right? God the Father, Christ the Son, they go hand in hand. Is it the Father's good news or the Son's good news? Yes. And if you read Paul, he, I mean, he, he uses those terms interchangeably. The good news of God, the good news of uh, Jesus Christ, the good news of the Son. He just blends them together. It is the same thing. They are both the gospel. Um, the Father through the Son. Uh, uh, I learned this just the other day. You might have already known this. But I just learned that the word gospel comes from an old English word, Godspell which just means glad tidings are good news. So good news might be a better way to say that because at least it gives you content, whereas gospel sounds like a special separate word. 
But it's really just good news. News which is good. So, found that interesting. And we got to talk about this. So, there's, there's really two things that come into the gospel stuff. You have the larger Greco-Roman world, and you have the Jewish world. So, first the Greco-Roman. Let's talk about that. So, the Greek word, uh, euangelizomai, uh, early on, it's a completely normal word, but eventually this word is used to refer to the appearance of a divine man. Remember, this is not referring to Jesus at, at this point yet, but in Greek mythology, they use this word to refer to the appearance of a divine man, a demigod, really is what it is, like Hercules or something like that, who approach, whose approach is announced with joy, which is fascinating. You can already kind of hear the, hmm... What, uh, what we can do with that later. Did you raise your hand? No? Oh, I thought you did. Um, and in fact, it was used in the emperor cult. So you know that in Greece and Rome, they worshipped their emperors. That's not true of all of them, technically, but of several of them, especially Caesar Augustus, who was Caesar right around the time Jesus was born, and maybe just a little bit after, not much longer. Um, and they worshipped him as a god, as a god-man, the emperor. This is why on the coins in Rome, they said, long live the son of God, referring to Caesar. Because they worshipped him. And this is really the context of the book of Revelation. They're worshipping the emperor, the beast, Babylon, Rome. They're worshipping the emperor. And the people of God are tempted to worship the emperor rather than God. And that's part of what John is seeing in his vision is we're pulling back the curtain and he's like, yeah, Rome looks attractive, but really it's just, um, it's just Babylon 2.0. And that's what we see. Uh, they worship the emperor. Here, here's, a, um, here's a quote, news of the divine ruler's birth, coming of age or enthronement, but also his speeches, decrees, and acts are all good news that brings hope for fulfillment of the longings of the world for happiness and peace. That sounds like stuff we would say about Jesus. All of what Jesus did, his speeches, decrees, his acts, everything he did, his, his miracles, his, um, especially the symbolic things that he does, his baptism, his crucifixion, his ascension, all of it, it all brings the fulfillment of the longings of the world for happiness and peace. Yeah? Is that a, uh, the NIV on the bottom there? What is that? Uh, New International Dictionary of something. It's a dictionary I have that I was using. I can't remember what the full title is. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. Here's it's a... ironic that, that Rome would be all looking out for the interest of peace and happiness. And That's interesting. So the Pax Romana, right? The Peace of Rome. Yeah. That's really like this big term that it's like, peace of Rome. Well, how do you come about the peace of Rome? Oh, we crush all opposition and demolish them and utterly humiliate and shame them. And you're like, that's not very peaceful. And they're like, well, it keeps the peace. Like the Soviet Union. Peace of Rome. Yeah. So it's interesting. Then, you know, whenever Jesus is born, especially in Luke's gospel, and it says, glad tidings, uh, peace on earth. These are the kinds of things they said when a Caesar was born, when a king was born. But for Jesus, of course, his definition of power is very different than the empire's. 
Very different. He, uh, he doesn't have upward mobility. Jesus has downward mobility. He becomes great not by making himself great, but be, by becoming humiliated even to the point of death, Philippians 2. So he has downward mobility rather than the emperor who's always ascending to the, the pantheon of the gods and what have you. Um, what time does class end? 10, 15? Yeah. Sweet. I got four minutes to read a decree. So Caesar, Caesar Augustus, one of the most famous Caesars of Rome, there's this inscription that was found, and it's a little long, but I'm going to read it to you, and just tell me this doesn't sound like something we would now say of Jesus. Okay? Give or take a little bit of um, swapping out a few words. He has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has given a new look into the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar had not been born for the common blessing of all men. Providence has filled Augustus with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men and by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us. His birthday was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings, the good news that have come to men through him. Hmm. It's almost as if you started saying some of this stuff, like the good news about Jesus, it would get you killed. Maybe even crucified. That was Rome's favorite way to, to squash those who would dare to subvert the Roman authority. Hmm. I'm telling you, you say some of the things Jesus said, you can make the Jews mad, but you'll make Rome mad too. And they will crucify you for it, which is exactly what happened. A savior? Caesar? Yeah, that's what they called him. The Savior, the Savior of the world, Caesar. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, so do you see some of the meaning that's loaded whenever you read the beginning of the good news? You can't get very far in Mark before you're like, oh. I mean, Mark writes this in the first century, and people are reading this in church. They're probably whispering it because they don't want Rome to hear them and then get mad. This is a bold proclamation, to say the least. Uh, there's some Jewish context, but we'll, we'll go into that next time um, because of course the Jews have an important concept behind good news specifically from the Old Testament but um, if that's not provocative enough to leave you wanting more I don't know what is I I'm telling you we're gonna spend a while on the first 15 verses we'll make more progress after we get past that but you gotta spend a while on the first 15 verses or else you won't understand everything else that comes after because it's the overture it's the introduction so uh, I will end us in prayer, and then we can uh, get ready for church. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for another day of life and breath. Thank you for donuts and coffee and for friends and laughter and hot showers. And thank you for all the little things that we have failed to mention. Thank you for Bible class this morning. Thank you for uh, inspiring Mark to write such a beautiful, uh, wonderful gospel to proclaim the good news about your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's in his name that we praise you and that we pray. Amen.